Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate, Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian, Dr. Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to live in an internet-centric world and we want to help. So what have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of She's the Man and an interview with Reese Farthing from Reset Australia. Listeners might remember back in Episode 7, we covered a piece of research that Reset Australia had done about terms and conditions. Today, we're going to be talking about children's online privacy more generally. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out to really find out what's the message that you need to know about today. And today, we're discussing some research from the United States about keeping children safe in an era of online learning and how we need to protect kids when they are using educational tools from their data being collected and sold to the highest bidder. Mm. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of the US about online education and cyber safety. This isn't something we've talked about much so far on Outside the Screen, but with so much education moving online since the pandemic, we know that families have some real concerns about things like data breaches and cyber attacks. So, Kim, what was the kind of fact basis for this uh, research to be done? Well, we know that, for example, half a million Zoom accounts, all their passwords ended up on the dark web. Good grief, yeah. So, human Rights Watch found that 145 out of 163 educational technology or ed tech remote learning tools collected and shared students' data to almost 200 third-party companies, mostly advertising companies. Good grief. How annoyed would you be about that as a parent if that had been your child? Good. So annoyed. Yeah, because yeah. it's exactly the moment when you think kids are going to be the most safe when they're at school, they're being educated, and then to have something like that happens. Wow does your head in. Right, so it was a different kind of research to what we normally talk about, wasn't it? Because they didn't actually do a survey. It was more, how did they do it? They did a Google Scholar search, essentially, looking mm -hmm. at policies yep. between like 2020 and 2023. Yeah, okay, right, which is stuff we need to know about. And then what did they find or what did they come out with at the end? Well, essentially, they're recommending that we stop mm -hmm. collecting our kids' data, mm -hmm. stop selling our kids' data. Yeah stop telling where their location is and what things they like to look at, mm -hmm. what shows they watch, what sports teams they follow, what yeah. are they uh, searching on and selling it to people who mm. could target them. Yeah. Well, that sounds like pretty common sense stuff. And we'll be talking and have talked at other times about privacy and data breaches and so on and how that all plays out when it comes to children and young people. So we'll leave that one to one side for the moment, but let's maybe think about, do we see this as making a difference ultimately? Like, do you think this is going to work, what they're suggesting? Well, someone has to protect the kids. And we've got, for example, the Cyber Security Act in the US, mm -hmm. 2021, President Biden signed to make sure that they protect kids at school, make sure their IT systems are locked down mm -hmm. because... Essentially, it's a Department of Homeland and Security problem. Mm -hmm. it's, it's essentially warfare. Yeah. So do you think there's a danger that a finding like this so might be distorted or oversimplified? That, that is, you know, the idea of, oh, we'll just, just stop selling their data. Like, is, is that too simple, do you think? Well, I think for a long time now, these problems have 
being placed in the too hard basket. Mm. And we need at least some kind of policy to keep up with the times. Yeah. You know, we've got outdated laws that were created for a period of time where things like Facebook didn't exist, things mm-hmm. like online learning didn't exist, things like Zoom didn't exist. We need to address the modern day world and places like the European Union, we've got the Children's Code in the United Kingdom, Five Rights Foundation, we've got COPPA, which we discussed on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Five Rights Foundation found one in 10 students aged 7 to 16 approved of ed tech apps sharing their data. Hmm. Right, yeah. So well, the kids don't want to do it. Hmm. Yeah, we could, why don't we ask the kids <laughs> what they think? Hey, yeah. do you want your passwords hmm. and your location stored on this server? Turns out kids are a lot smarter than we think. Yeah, well, they, they can see what's coming and it's their lives that are being affected. Yeah. Okay, so what about how it could inform parenting or caring for children? It sounds to me like they're basically saying, look, cut this stuff off at the source and stop putting the burden on parents. But do you see parents in the picture here at all? Well, I, I often work with parents who have had enough of the system yeah. fighting against the system. For example, this week, working with a, a young mother, two young kids, and the one that I'm being asked to, to talk to is addicted to their laptop which they got from their school, and not going to sleep. Mm. And oh. the parent's able to manage every other single device because they use a parenting software on their own devices. Uh-huh. But when they ask the school, just as a kind of respectful gesture, is it okay if we install this parenting software? You know, the well-known software school says, too hard basket. Ah. Sorry, we've we got no policies to deal with this. Oh, that's really shocking, isn't And so it? I had to go to the education department find out who the principal was. The principal's like, yeah, sure, we'll find a solution. But the parent had already gone to the principal, gone mm. to the teachers, gone to the IT. It was only when they involved a doctor. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's like, right, yeah. I got a silly. note from a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Goodness. And, and I know, like I've talked to so many parents who are just really concerned about educational institutions handing over devices to their kids. It's the kind of thing that we might like to have some say in as parents, but, uh, you know, a lot of... Schools just don't give the parents a choice these days. And you know, you've got to have some understanding for why they do that. They have their own things they're trying to achieve, but it's just such a problematic thing, isn't it, for parents to be put in that position? Oh, dear. All right. Well, um, let's see if we can be a little bit more optimistic in our next segment. Well, that was... a bit of interesting information there about what goes on with children's data sometimes when they're using educational technology applications. There's some stuff we really all need to be aware of. The paper was by Tiffany O'Dell and Arup Kumar Ghosh and the title is Online Threats Versus Mitigation Efforts Keeping Children Safe in the Era of Online Learning. It was published in Southeast Con. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review and Marinella is going to tell us why She's the Man is recommended for kids aged 13 and up. Hello, I'm Marinella, and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of She's the Man. 
I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children 13 and up with parental guidance for 8 to 12, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you may want to discuss with your kids. She's the Man is a romantic comedy which provides a contemporary adaptation of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Viola Hastings is a Cornwell High School student who is the star of the girls' soccer team and whose main passion in life is playing soccer. When Cornwell cuts the girls' soccer team from their program and refuses to allow Viola to try out for the boys' team, Viola poses as her twin brother Sebastian, who is away in London for a couple of weeks. She enrolls at his new school in Lyria, Cornwall's soccer rival, so she can try out for their soccer team. With the help of her friends, Viola dons a short wig, sticks on some sideburns and takes a crash course on how to walk, talk and act like a man and passes herself off as her brother. Viola's life at her new school becomes complicated when she falls for a new roommate, Duke Orsino, who has a crush on Olivia, who in turn is smitten with Sebastian. Also in the mix is Monique, Sebastian's totally conceited girlfriend, whom Viola dumps. The big day of the soccer match between Cornwell and Illyria arrives, but things go awry when Viola slips in and her brother, the real Sebastian, who can't play soccer, arrives. There is some violence in this movie, including fights between the teenage characters involving punches to the face and stomach, slaps across the face and head, grabbing, pushing, shoving, and the throwing of shoes. There are also some sexual references with lines like girls with asses like mine don't talk to boys with faces like yours. While the lead character is not all that convincing as a boy, her character is very likable as a girl and the film does contain some funny moments. The main message of the movie is about the unfairness that can happen when boys and girls are treated unequally. There is also a message about the ethics of emotional manipulation, as in uh, deliberately making someone you are attracted to jealous in order to gain their attention. The messages are mixed in that Viola is rewarded for her use of deception to gain what she wants, and there are no negative consequences for her deception. Parents may wish to encourage their children to follow Viola's example in persevering through adversity to achieve their goals and to emulate the way Viola's friends supported her. This movie could give parents the opportunity to discuss with their children what can really happen if they use deception to get what they want and with adolescents to discuss more constructive ways to handle sexual jealousy. Parents may also wish to discuss with their children how women have been affected by gender inequality in the past and how it can still be present in current times. She's the Man is available on a range of different streaming platforms and the CMA reviewers recommend for children 13 and up. Parental guidance for 8 to 12 years old. For children under 8, 
Mm, best to find another movie. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA websites. And when Marinella talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title, alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might like to join the CMA Facebook community as well. That's facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, all one word. More details later on about how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time to take a deep dive into online privacy policy. Liz recently caught up with Reese Farthing from Reset Australia, who's all over that. Well, Reese, welcome to Outside the Screen. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm always super excited to talk to anyone who wants to talk about anything young people and digital. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here. You've come to the right place for sure. So you've been doing lots and lots of work on children's data privacy. Um, and I think for our listeners, it'd be best if we just go back to the very beginning about why we need to be concerned about this whole area. Fundamentally, the reason we should all be concerned about children's data privacy is the same reason I think we need to be concerned about our own data privacy. Yeah. So firstly, you know, because privacy is a right and we all have it. And secondly, because violating privacy can have huge consequences for individuals and society. But for children in particular, I kind of worry that those risks, those potential consequences are absolutely amplified to a level where they almost become qualitatively different. Mm-hmm. If you bear with me here, when we sort of talk about these differences, it's like, you know, you and I, and, and maybe some of the people who are listening too, we grew up in an era where we weren't datafied from birth, where mm-hmm. datafied wasn't, you know, it wasn't collected about us and stored from baby monitors or wearables or, you know, connected toys or apps weren't tracking my heartbeat when I ran my PE class. <laughs> but today's kids just have so much data about them that this becomes risky in itself. Yeah, And I reckon for me, that risk is partly because data has a problem with permanence. Mm-hmm. So unlike, you know, your and my old paper records, data just hangs around until you actively delete it. Yeah. So my nieces and my nephews, for example, they're going to be carrying around a whole lifetime's worth of data with them, you know, everything from infancy through to school. Yeah. But it's also partly because I reckon data has a problem with being all too easily shared and misused. Mm-hmm. So we simply don't know how all of that data is going to be used you know, like yeah. firstly, how it's being used to shape their lives already, you know, mm. from algorithms deciding that they're vulnerable to this type of content on social media or that they should be served this type of ad online to mm. data being used in automated decision-making processes. But what really worries me, what keeps me up at night is that we also don't know how all of that data could be used in the future. Yeah. So could data about that heart murmur you had as a baby that was detected by your, you know, connected baby grower, whatever, 
be sold on to an insurance company or the mental health crisis you had when you were 15 as detected by the mindfulness app you were told to use mm. you know could all of that be used to deny affordable health care into your 50s could yeah. you know your school behavioral data as fed into a personalized learning app be used by recruiters in the future we, we just don't know and so there's like there's just a lot of data out there and it's mm. very poorly controlled and that that just creates a lot of risk sure does yeah and you've just laid down a, a tiny corner of it in that you know lovely succinct uh, summary that you just gave I, I was just sitting here thinking about my school reports you know I've got them in paper handwritten in a box locked up in my room you know that's where they are but today's kids their school reports would be you know, all datafied and all you know potentially made available you know either you know the, the examples that you were giving were of more or less legitimate applications like things we wouldn't be happy about but more or less legitimate but then when you start thinking about privacy breaches that you know the mm. sky's the limit really isn't it yeah absolutely right data always carries an inherent risk and the more data that exists and the more personal that data is the greater the risk yeah for sure so obviously there's a really strong need to protect it what are the best ways that you've seen of protecting that kind of privacy well, look, I'm always a big fan of systemic population-wide yeah. protections. Yeah. So for me, one of the most effective routes is always going to be legislative reform. Mm -hmm. And we've got some really good examples of child-centric, child rights-focused privacy legislations emerging around the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually really optimistic. I feel like now is the moment where the world might, you know, just mm -hmm. might, mm -hmm. um, just be able to start meaningfully advancing children's rights to privacy in the digital world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these legislations that I'm talking about, they're nuanced and they're detailed, but at their core, they're really about embedding that, you know, the best interest principle. Mm. In short, they make it clear that you can only collect and use children's data in ways that advance their best interests mm -hmm. and don't create these risks. And Australia actively has a proposal around this on the table too, through the Privacy yeah. Act review. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping you can understand my optimism at the moment. <laughs> there, there is an awful lot going on. And I've, I too am optimistic that something good's going to come of it. It won't solve the whole problem, but it can only make it better. And, and I do think there's a general will. And it seems to be cross-party in Australia at least too, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It seems to be pretty pretty broadly supported. Yeah. yeah, like the first proposals, if you look at it, to do something around children's best interest and privacy came from um, ministers in the Morrison government. Yeah. And then those proposals have been repeated by the new Albanese yeah. government. So yeah. I feel like if anything should have cross-party support, it, it really <laughs> should be protecting our kids' yeah. privacy. That's all looking quite hopeful at the moment. So that's lovely. Um, mm. But obviously when we're doing something that is so fundamental and so important and so big, there are going to be tensions and trade-offs, aren't there? Like decisions that have to be made about, well, we're going to prioritise this over that. So what kind of tensions and trade-offs have you noticed when we're trying to protect online privacy? That is such a good question. <laughs> and I always approach things from a rights-based perspective. So yep. when I think about the digital world, as I often do, Children have the right to privacy, but they've also got the right to protection, the right to participate and access the digital world. And often, you know, these can be presented as trade-offs. And indeed, many of the young people I've spoken to about the digital world in Australia seem to feel like it really is this deal with the devil, mm -hmm. that a trade-off is central to their experience of the digital world in Australia. Yeah. And 
you know, they talk about the, the need to trade off their privacy, to share just that little bit of extra information, to have that little bit of extra fun. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, at its core, they're talking about the digital world exists as, as a place where you trade off your right to access with your right to privacy. Yeah. But I don't know, like, again, this might be because I'm too optimistic, but I think that that's a bit of a false binary. And, and mm-hmm. what it reflects is simply the deep dark hole we've got ourselves stuck in it Mm. so if we think about it a little bit differently and ask a different question like if we could restore privacy in the digital world through say strong and well-enforced regulations Mm. could Australian kids enjoy privacy and access to the digital world at the same time and I think that's utterly possible and entirely desirable so look yeah you know I'm not denying there are some trade-offs that always will be when you're talking about balancing children's rights and their best interests Mm -hmm. in the plural. Yeah. But I think a lot of the issues that we come up against that are tough or a lot of the difficult choices we've got to make, I think they really only are difficult choices if you imagine that the digital world can't be redesigned, that it Mm -hmm. can't be rebuilt. Yeah. And I just think it can. I think we there's so much that we can change that can maximize privacy access and safety at the same time and look at the edges of that there will be trade-offs but I think we're so far away from having to talk about the meaningful trade-offs that exist Mm, yeah um that it's you know I I wouldn't want us to get tripped up on them now (laughs) okay um, there's also, I think, maybe a bit of a tension between consent and safety by design that, well, I don't know if it's a tension, but you know, some of the proposals and discussions seem to be going in the direction of saying, well, we'll just get really, really good consent regulations and that will solve it. And then other people want to say, no, safety by design, there shouldn't be too much to consent to. But from what you said before, I gather you're a bit of a fan of safety by design rather than a consent model. Yeah, look, absolutely. I I think one of the things that we often do is we unfairly make children or parents consent to rights violating data protection. And I just don't think that anyone, no parent, no child, should have to be asked to consent to have their data unfairly exploited. Mm, At its core, I just think it's a wrong-headed approach to somehow Mm. suggest that look, because busy parents have clicked I accept to these terms of service, Mm. that somehow that means it's a free-for-all and (laughs) digital services can create these obscene risks for their Mm. children. I think we've got to reintroduce that idea that data really can and should only be collected and used where it is in children's best interests mm. in the first place, consent or not. Yeah. Now, a lot of proposals, and this goes back to various other kinds of issues that I've been involved in over the years, be it food advertising, TV advertising, all sorts of things. A lot of proposals seem to be limited to providers who are actively targeting or addressing children. Do you think it's worth pressing for solutions that aren't limited in that way that might extend to things that aren't actively targeting or addressing children? Yeah, look, there's just such a sticking point for legislation. So Mm. while it sounds like a super geeky, nuanced point that you were debating here, it's so important to unpack. And, And I think you're absolutely right. We saw some of the earliest legislation around privacy and children online, which is, I'm thinking about the Child Online Protection Act or or COPPA, Mm -hmm. which emerged out of the US way back in 1998. Mm -hmm. Um, And it did, you know, COPPA for all of its flaws, it did apply additional protections for children's data. Mm -hmm. But it did so, as you mentioned, only for products that were directly intended to be used by under 13-year-olds. Or in policy speak, 
for products that were directly targeting children or where companies had what they called actual knowledge that children were using their products. Mm -hmm. And this created really significant loopholes. Yeah. So if a product, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's geeky, but it's true. (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah. If a product was not targeting a child under 13-year-old or a company didn't go out to find actual knowledge that kids were using their products, copper simply didn't apply. Mm. So you can just turn a blind eye. You can be sort of selectively blind about what's going on and you're fine. You don't have to do anything. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we saw. So so somehow I will be generous and say somehow completely coincidentally, <laughs> we saw a whole digital world spring up after 1998, where platforms set minimum age requirements to 13. Mm-hmm. So they said, we're not targeting 13 year olds, the minimum age to use our social media platform is 13. And this led to absolute absurdities, like claims that children did not use YouTube's main site, despite the prevalence of children's content on there, Mm -hmm. simply because the terms of service said no under 13 year olds, right? So it just created this huge loophole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I don't know, like for me, times have dramatically changed since copper, right? Like it's 25 years ago now. And one of the things we've learned in policy, well, one of the things we've learned in general is that children more often use services that adults use as well, from mm. you know Netflix to weather apps to the smart speaker in your house. Yeah. And so what policymakers at least have started to do is applying these sort of risk-based ways, these risk-focused ways to apply protections to children to all of the services that are likely to be accessed by children. And so that's the sort of where a lot of legislation is moving to it, mm-hmm. you know, protections for children will apply to all digital services that are quote unquote likely to be accessed by yeah. children. It just closes that loophole and it reflects yep. the actual reality of children's online lives where, you know, we make regulations flow into the places where children actually are online mm. rather than the few places we kind of imagine that only they are. Yeah, it is a huge difference. And as you say, it's a loophole. I've often said it's more like a, tunnel you could drive a bus through than a loophole that suggests something quite small but um, it really puts in focus that you know what we're doing here is we're trying to protect children's interests so let's find children where they are and protect them where they are rather than say well here's where we think they should be we'll put a whole lot of protections in there but um, that's not the way that it works and you've just got to be so serious about that or you might as well not bother I think and I agree with you that I I think there are hopeful indications that the world generally is getting ready for this idea. And I've noticed it in other policy areas, like again, thinking of food ads, that at least in some documents that have been coming out in recent years, that's the language that they're using rather than targeted or addressing or directed at or aimed at or that sort of stuff that it's, you know, where children are likely to be, what they're likely to be exposed to. So that's all good. Now, coming back to the idea of best interest of the child, what would that mean in a privacy context? And I'm also going to ask you who's in the best position to determine what they are. (laughs) Um, So I'll I'll foreshadow that, but you might want to um, throw that all in together. It means do no harm. Mm -hmm. So we know at the moment that there are a lot of ways that children and young people's data is used to actively harm them. So I'm thinking here, like, you know, we did a a really simple experiment back in 2020 where we looked at how Facebook Australia, how, well, actually it's Meta Australia, how the platform allowed advertisers to select that, look, I would like to target uh, 13, 16-year-olds, whatever, who are 
actively profiled as interested in alcohol or gambling and I'd like to serve them some pretty dubious ads about you know here are cocktail recipes you can make from things you've stolen from your parents liquor cabinet and so on now just to be clear we didn't run those ads we just showed that these profile categories were available and that you could get approval to run these ads wow but when you think about that you just realize that look On the one hand, you've got these companies that are, you know, with the right hand, they're stealing children's data. (laughs) Then behind their back, they twist it up into these dangerous profiles. And on the left hand, they're serving it back with with slightly Mm. dodgy advertising. You know, it's just beggar's belief that people can actively use kids' data to create risk. You know, what Um, I would call that is that they they get you coming and going both ways. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly it. But on a le- on another level, I think it is about putting in place something that's slightly more precautionary. Mm-hmm. It's that look, if it does create risk, if, if there is any doubt, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that in Europe, for example. So, like in Europe, where the Digital Services Act, where they've got these strong pieces of regulation come in, they've done some really good thinking about targeted ads in general and and what that means for young people. And they're like, look, we just can't see how these are in children's best interests. Mm-hmm. And you and I can have a debate, and I know a lot of people do about, okay, well, is advertising actually bad for us? How do we know? Oh, there's mm-hmm. academic grey area, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> But what we can't do is no one's given us any clear evidence that targeted advertising is good for kids. Mm-hmm. So actually across, started in Ireland, but right across Europe now, they've turned off targeted advertising to children. You just right. can't serve kids targeted ads. Mm-hmm. Now, as a result, we've seen platforms go out with all of these wonderful PR statements about how they've decided to um turn off targeted ads for kids and you can now only reach young people based on their gender and location. So they've all sort of put this out as these big PR releases, but I I think it was a reaction to legislation that had come in you know (laughs) in in big markets around the world and look fair enough they're they're living up to it. Mm. But I just think that that is such a good example of what best interests really Mm -hmm. means. It's like when in doubt if you can't show that this is right just just don't do it. And I think that it sounds like such a simple geeky piece, but mm-hmm. it does have the capacity to really change the way the digital world yeah. you know, collects, you know, yeah. the fuel that fuels yeah. the digital world for kids and, and mm. put them first, like yeah. make, the, make it a bit child-centric in our yeah. data protection regime. Mm. Mm. It's a big paradigm shift basically, isn't it? A whole different lens to look through. Absolutely. Another thing that occurs to me about best interests of the child is that people tend to think that children are, you know, all tech savvy and so on today, but they are still children and they do have these developmental needs and milestones and so on that they need to be meeting. Oh, exactly. And I often watch young people use technology and they're very fast on the click and they know how to do things and they know mm-hmm. how to do things. And that's one version of tech savvy. But I think it's really important to remember that while they might be absolutely brilliant at fast at using all these applications, that does not mean just exactly like adults, that does not mean that we're cognizant of the risk profiles of what we're doing online, right? Yeah, that is yeah. a different skill set. And yeah. and young people and adults often lack that. Mm. So um yeah, for sure. I think understanding what we mean by tech savvy is also yeah. <laughs> well there's yeah. yeah. there's tech savvy and there's content savvy and they don't yes. necessarily go together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. hmm Just yeah. just like my phone keeps chiming and I haven't <laughs> very quickly been able to grab it and stop it doing that. Anyway, I'll work it out.
Look, it's been lovely chatting with you, Reese, as always, and all the best of luck and everything else good in the work that you've got coming up. And I'm sure we'll catch up again before too long and find out what Reset Australia has been up to. Brilliant. And thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a really fun discussion. Pleasure was all mine. Okay, bye for now. Just before we move on to the next part of the podcast, I wanted to let you know that there was a little bit more that Reese and I discussed, and in particular her tips for parents about how to manage situations where they're required to consent or where they're asked to consent. And that's being put out as subscriber-only content. So if you want to hear it, please subscribe on Substack. There are details in the show notes, and it's probably also worth knowing that subscription is free. It just means that uh, you get an email whenever some content comes out from this podcast. There will be options for paid subscriptions at some point in the future, but they're not happening yet. And for the time being, all we're encouraging you to do is to take out a free subscription and that way you'll get to hear the rest of the interview with Reese. Hope to see you there. Well, that's all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 11. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction related on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book a telehealth appointment for me to work with your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. And finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. And And this this has been been the team from Outside the Screen. See you next week.